to the old G. Do me the old G A N he playing. Make some noise. Succession is back. The acclaimed HBO media family drama, and a personal favorite of both Emily and mine, has blessed us with its third season, and from the acting, to the writing, to the punch of the plot twist momentum, it is, dare I say, shaping up to be the show's best season yet. So Emily, why are you so obsessed with Succession? So the way I often describe it to friends is that as a journalist, you're always feeling like you're living at the mercy of these people in the C-suite upstairs. They're people you never get to see, but who are making decisions that deeply impact your life, even whether you have a job from one week to the next. So watching Succession, in a way, feels like finally getting a glimpse into those discussions. And that sort of lends itself to this freeing, dark humor where you realize that the decisions that are being handed down to you might just come down to someone having a bad day or being in some kind of Shakespearean power struggle, or even some internal crisis that has absolutely nothing to do with you. Obviously, there's one scene that I think stands out as an especially strong example of this. It's a scene where Kendall, one of the sons of Logan Roy, the media magnate who owns Waystar Royco, goes into the newsroom of a digital media company called Valter, which the corporation owns, and unceremoniously lays everybody off. Here's a little refresher on that one. You're all fired. So if you can leave your laptops where they are and hand in your passes, security will be coming around now. Been through everything you've shown me. Food and weed. Those are the only two verticals driving revenue, so we're folding them in. You have 15 minutes to gather your belongings and exit the building. Unused vacation days will not be reimbursed. That's it. I'd like to thank you all for your hard work. You piece of shit! Yeah. Whew, yeah. <laughs> so, as a journalist, I mean, that scene hit way too close to home, felt way too real to experiences that I think us and our peers have had. And, you know, the accuracy of it also felt cathartic. Totally. And I have some journalist friends who actually are too afraid to watch the show because they're worried it's going to be traumatizing. Oh my God. Um, but I guess some of us actually enjoy the catharsis. Like I'm with you on that. It's like an entire newsroom getting laid off because Kendall just wanted to impress his dad. Brutal. Yeah, the thing I really love about Succession is that it feels like one of the few contemporary pieces of fiction that actually feels brutally honest, immediate, and raw about the world that we're currently living in. Like from the corporate chokehold over media and politics to the culture wars, you know, to good old fashioned dysfunctional families. And above all, it's really an unflinching look at where power comes from and how it's reproduced. I totally agree with that, Andrea. And Especially on this season, it just does such a good job of capturing the sort of crisis PR theater that these large corporations engage in when they're dealing with a scandal. Even just the way that everyone repeatedly uses phrases like, we take this very seriously, while privately referring to the people impacted by that scandal as no real person involved. No RPIs. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like, Kendall is launching this huge power grab on the pretext of righting the company's wrongs against women and ushering the company into the 21st century when he's basically just a white dude trying to like leverage social justice rhetoric to consolidate his own position. Exactly. And part of the show's pitch perfect rendering of these brutal inner workings of a media company comes down to the fact that the showrunners are hiring people who know exactly what they're talking about. One of those people on Succession's second season was Cord Jefferson, a longtime journalist and former editor and writer at Gawker who left the media industry seven years ago to try his hand at TV writing. Since then, he's been one of the brains behind thought-provoking fan favorites like The Good Place, love that show, Master of None, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and Watchmen, even winning an Emmy for his work on the latter show with co-writer Damon Lindelof. He's also carved out a name for himself as an advocate for other journalists looking to dip their toe into the entertainment industry. 
Earlier this year, he teamed up with the Writers Guild of America to launch the Susan M. Haas Fellowship, which empowers journalists looking to craft original pilots with financial support and creative mentorship. He's also one of the writers behind a show about the rise and fall of Gawker Media itself, which we can't wait to see when it finally makes it to the screen. So to celebrate Succession's third season, we brought Cord on to discuss his experiences in media and how those experiences have informed his work on fictional portrayals of the media business like Succession and The Gawker Show. We discussed the ways that Hollywood gets journalism right, and also sometimes terribly wrong, along with some of the struggles creatives in both fields are facing in a creative economy increasingly driven by algorithms. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We're here with our guest, Cord Jefferson. Thank you for having me. So before we get into all of this, tell us a little bit about what first drew you to a project like Succession, given your journalism background. What did it feel like to be asked to contribute to a show on that deals with media? So they reached out to me before Succession had premiered, actually. So I didn't really know what Succession was going to be. They were just like, this is a show that sort of is a send-up of the Murdochs. And so that intrigued me. Um, but I was mostly interested in Jesse Armstrong just as a creative because he was sort of like the one of the geniuses behind the show that I really loved called uh, Peep Show. It's this British comedy show that I, that I was in love with. And he also, did this movie, he also did this movie called Four Lions that I thought was really good, this sort of like satirical terrorist movie with Riz Ahmed. So I was just really excited to, to work with him. I think that... I had the interview with Jesse before I had even seen an episode of Succession. I was going to say yes, no matter what. I think they sent me like the first three before they premiered. And once I saw the episodes and saw how good they were, I was you know extra excited to work on it. Rolling back a little bit before that, tell us about how yeah. you ended up in TV in the first place and what that transition from being a journalist has been like. That was totally unexpected. I, I say you know that my literary heroes are like Joan Didion and James Baldwin. And nice. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And I think it's not just because they're like incredible writers. Right. But I think that what it meant, what it meant to be a writer for them was incredibly broad. And so, you know, they'd write a book of essays and then they'd write a novel and then they'd go and like follow a politician around and write a sort of like reported reported article about that. Then they'd write a screenplay. Something that I was blown away when I heard it that I think a lot of people don't know is that uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X which I think is one of his best movies. The original screenplay for that was written by James Baldwin. Like, you know, obviously they did some rewrites, but the original draft of that was James Baldwin's draft. So just what it meant to be a writer for them was very big. And I think that when I first started out as, as a writer, I started out as a journalist and I always, always had ambition to do other stuff, but I didn't really know how to get into other things. I assumed that eventually I'd write a book and then writing the book might lead to a movie or TV show. But, you know, entertainment is just incredibly difficult to break into. I wasn't a rich kid. My parents were, you know, professionals in Arizona. So even despite the fact that I lived in LA, I didn't really have any friends who were in entertainment. And so to me, it just seemed like an impossible barrier to climb. I was kind of like on the other side of the fence thinking it would be cool if I could see into the garden, but there was no way for me to do it. And then one day I was, I was working at Gawker was my last journalism job. I worked at Gawker from 2012 to 2014. And a showrunner of a TV show had seen this this thing that I had done for Gawker about. I wrote this satirical article about the problem of like um, violent white youth, like the white community. They're letting their kids like run amok in the streets. And Chris Hayes had me on to do sort of a send up of that article. So Chris and I just sort of like made fun of like the violent white youth and like what's going on in the white community. And the showrunner, this guy named Mike O'Malley, saw that when he reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to write for his show. Uh, so. I, I quit my job at Gawker and, and, you know, I quit on a Friday and I was, I was in the writer's room on Monday. It was, it was a pretty quick turnaround. Oh man, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the time I thought it was pretty normal. I thought that that was kind of how everybody got in or, or many people at least. And I've since, since I've been working in, in entertainment now for seven years, I've realized that it's pretty rare how, how you get in. But yeah, I feel, you know, 
I feel very, very fortunate. I, 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 we got in that first room and the first room was only, it was only 13 weeks and I was actually getting paid less than I was getting paid at Gawker. So it was like, I was taking a pay. Oh, wow. I wasn't in the, in the writer's guild yet. I was, I, I was getting paid what was called a neophyte rate. So I was getting paid sort of like lower than, lower than minimum. Um, and you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I liked the collaborative nature of it. I liked, I liked the process. I liked the idea of sort of writing fiction, which I had never done before. That first job wasn't perfect, but it was a glimpse into into sort of the industry, and I and I liked it. Can you tell us a little bit about what working at Gawker was like during that period, and what you were leaving behind? Yeah, I mean, I I really liked Gawker. I loved it there. I loved the work. I loved my coworkers. I loved the sort of like mission statement of the site. As I've gotten older, I'm starting to realize like how much anger animates my life. I was an angry young man, and I think I've become sort of like an angry middle-aged man in some ways (laughs) nowadays, too. And I I remember reading in an article about Gawker that somebody sort of like coined the term the um, rage of the creative underclass. It was just a bunch of like smart, talented, funny people who were looking at the world around them and looking at media and sort of were like, why don't I have like a cushy you know, million dollar a year contract job at like Esquire or GQ or any of these other legacy media brands and pointing out the faults that they saw in the world. It felt very much like a pirate ship in, in, in many ways. It was kind of like you, you got there and, and you made your own way and that nobody really, you know, my first day at Gawker, nobody told me what to do. It was just kind of like, here's your login for the, for the CMS and now just like post stuff. <laughs> and that was like frightening and terrifying, but also incredibly freeing and um, exciting at the same time. So I, I, you know, I sort of was really nervous about leaving Gawker because I loved it so much. Ultimately, I think I made the right choice, but I certainly do miss that kind of writing. I miss doing that stuff from time to time. You know, it's unfortunate because it does feel like that was truly an era just for kind kind of new slash younger media, like this generation and even now, I feel like it's like if any of us wanted to go back to it, there's not really that to go back to. But I, you raise yeah. a really great point because I feel like a lot of times these conversations around Gawker and certain other sites that Emily and I have worked for over the years, there's a lot of talk about low pay, bad things in the workplace, but you don't often hear about the kind of thrill of it that it was and and the freedom and this really kind of turning point for a new generation to kind of reclaim media and journalism for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the kind of work that I was doing before was in these very sort of like traditional journalistic outlets. And, and, you know, I was never like at the times or the New Yorker or anything, but I, before that I had worked at the root, which was at the time it was owned by slate, which was owned by the Washington post. I ended up as an editor at good magazine for a while, which was also sort of like pretty traditional and in its ethos. And when I got to Gawker, it was just like, yeah, call this politician an asshole if you want to. Like, call this person like a stupid idiot if you want to. It was kind of like, it was like the permission to be aggressive, permission to sort of like say what you actually felt about things instead of sort of pussyfooting around the idea that you had any opinions or, or a real view of the world. The, the ethos when I worked there was, was if it's true, publish it. Obviously, there were mistakes made at Gawker and people published things that weren't true. And then you had to go back and sort of like quickly update whatever you were writing. But it felt like it was actually sort of like living in the world and engaging with the world on its own terms instead of sort of like doing this like high-minded um, tightrope walk that, that I think that sort of, you know, a lot of traditional journalism exists. In. It just gave you permission to be kind of grimy and angry and aggressive and, you know, mean even, of course. And, and, and also funny. Yeah, exactly. I worked with some of the funniest people that I've ever met. At, at that job. When I was there, it was Katie Weaver and Adrian Chen and Max Reed and Hamilton Nolan, um, Leah Beckman, AJ Delario, Emma Carmichael, Taylor Berman. It was just kind of this like murderer's row of incredibly talented writers and editors. I would laugh all day. My title was the West Coast editor, but that was just because I didn't want to move to New York. And so I lived in LA the whole time. And so my only communication with them was over campfire, like I don't know, campfire was pre slack. And so I would just like laugh all day at the stuff that people put in the campfire. It was just sort of like endless runs of bits and jokes. And, and you know, a lot of it never made it. To, I think that some of that pissed off Nick Den because he would he would get angry because he would say like the some of the best stuff of the day would be left in campfire instead of published onto the site. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I can relate to that. I was I was the West Coast editor for Noisy Advice. It was like the exact same situation. All my coworkers were in New York, but laughing all day on Slack. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, like I, exactly. I still I still miss our headline chat room. You know. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was one of the most fun jobs that I've ever had. It's also exhausting. You know, I did it for two years, and and after two years, I was pretty beat. But I, I can't imagine. You know, there was people who were there for you know five times that it's a pretty brutal breakneck pace. And I, you know, the likelihood of burnout is pretty high. I would say. I think we can relate to that. Yeah. (laughs) What was it like to come to a show like succession after having had that experience? I think that they like wanted to bring me in specifically because I had worked at Gawker. I could only work as a consultant because I had to go back to Watchmen. I'd started Watchmen about like a year before and then I, uh, I went back to the good place, actually, from Watchmen. And then basically in between my good place and Watchmenston, I did six weeks in, um, in London for succession. There's another writer named Will Tracy who used to work at The Onion when all of those properties were bought by Univision. So he had sort yeah. of like seen the slow destruction of The Onion under Univision. And I had seen the sort of like slow destruction of Gawker. And so they, I think they wanted to bring us in just to sort of like pitch on the show in general, but also to sort of like talk about our experiences at, at, at that, at those kinds of publications, specifically for like the Volter storyline that was going to happen. <laughs> Bittersweet catharsis. <laughs> Difficult to watch, I'm sure. <laughs> and the spitting in Kendall's face moment. I felt like a little bit of that gawker spirit. I'd yeah, say. exactly. I think that it was probably cathartic for some people to watch that just the idea like imagine if you could spit in the face of like these uh private equity idiots who have bought your website and are sort of like slowly destroying it and ruining something that used to be great yeah and also the bit about how they had downsized to just what was it weed it was like food and weed i think right Mm -hmm. Yeah, the food vertical and the weed vertical are, only the, are the only two profitable ones. <laughs> exactly, and it would be run by interns or like an editor and, and interns. I wonder how much audiences, you know, general audiences, not folks that work in media, just can really savor or appreciate those little <laughs> details. <laughs> yeah, I think that that felt very sort of like specific to maybe like 1,500 people in New York and Los Angeles. <laughs> I think that those those people especially liked that episode. I think that everybody else probably enjoyed it, but probably to a lesser degree. I guess it's convenient that like those fifteen hundred people are also like journalists, so they're going to talk about it a lot and tell all exactly. their friends. About it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and that was just such an example of how that show felt like one of the few shows or like few works coming out of Hollywood that got the media landscape and its politics right. Whereas often when I watch movies featuring journalists, I'm like laughing because it's completely, you know, off from what like a present day journalist experience would be. Do you think Hollywood in general understands journalism and the media industry and why or why not? Um, this sort of like leads into a show that I created with, with my old colleague, Max Reed, uh, that we were sort of developing at Apple based on our time and experience at Gawker, you know, Max and I sort of met and one day and we're, we're chatting about the depiction of journalism in, in entertainment, you know, journalism is like either, it's either like the character is like a real slimy dirt bag. <laughs> I was, I just watched, uh, have you guys ever seen that movie Red Dragon? Yeah. It's like Philip Seymour Hoffman is like the, exactly what I'm talking about there. He's like this totally, like, totally. scuzzy journalist who like is like sneaking around, taking all these like creepy photos of, of Edward Norton's character. Or it's like all the president's men. And it's right. like, the, or, or spotlight where it's like the journalism is the most important thing in the <laughs> world. And these people like do heroic jobs and nothing that they do is wrong. They, everything they do is right. And, and we met and we were like sort of at least our time in journalism was spent somewhere in between those two poles, right? It's like there would be days that I would go into work at Gawker and I would be incredibly proud of the work we did. And I would be like, this is this is place is excellent. And, and the stuff we did today and the stuff that I did today was very important. 
then there would be days that I left Gawker feeling like a little embarrassed and ashamed of myself and feeling like what I had done that day was had sort of like made the world worse. And it, <laughs> it was sort of, it was never, it was, it was never sort of like I, I left feeling like a slime ball or like a hero of the world. It was always a roller coaster of up and down. The things that make a person a great journalist are also, you know, the things that make people dislike you as a human being, which is like, you have to be nosy. You have to publish secrets. You have to investigate people's lives. You have to sort of like sort through their garbage and the sort of like the sordid details of their existence that they don't want to share with the world. Like these are all the things that, that, that you do as a journalist. And, and, and these are all the things that we did at Gawker. And sometimes that, that sort of like left you feeling a little scuzzy, but I personally don't feel like there's a ton of entertainment about journalists that, that feel like it, it, it reflects my experience in the world of journalism. And I especially think that like bloggers are feel like are often depicted as like, are still depicted as like, you're in your, you know, mom's basement in your sweatpants, like drinking, you know, a two liter of soda and like eating chips out of the bag. And it's like, like, like furiously it, typing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's just kind of like bloggers are still depicted as these kind of like loser idiots who sort of like don't really know what they're talking about when actually my existence as a blogger was spent in like this beautiful classic downtown Soho loft space that, you know, wasn't at all like a mother's basement. So I sort of, I feel like that isn't really discussed or, or, or depicted in the way that, that feels real and authentic to me. Yeah. Shows or movies will sort of, you know, latch on to the obvious like plot device of featuring a journalist where, you know, it's almost akin to a detective figuring out a mystery, you know, or something like that. Yeah. But then not much is spent excavating the the moral dilemmas of journalism. Like the the whole Janet Malcolm, you know, is journalism morally indefensible thing. Exactly, exactly. At the start of our pilot, like we had that Janet Malcolm quote at the beginning of our Gawker show, specifically because mm. we sort of like we felt like that is sort of an under discussed aspect of the job. Where do you fall in this matter? Uh, is is journalism beyond good and evil? Is it good? Is it evil? I mean, it depends on where you stand. Like, I think that Gawker was largely good, but I think that mm -hmm. Gawker made some mistakes along the way. To me, Gawker reached a point that it was like, do you guys remember Lenia from Of Mice and Men? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like Lenny, Lenny didn't know his own strength, right? And Lenny sort of like picked mm -hmm. up the dog and thought he was petting the dog and he killed it. By the time that I was there, Gawker was sort of like used in the same breath as the New York Times and people, it was well read and sort of like it was being discussed in the media and it's sort of like it had power and it was still operating as if it was like 2005 and it was being published out of Nick Denton's apartment. I think that it, it got to a point when it felt like sometimes it was punching down and, and it felt like it didn't really understand its own strength and the, and the power that it had amassed. And so I think that, you know, there are secrets that probably shouldn't be told. When I was really in the thick of it, like I said, it was if it was true, then you print it. And I don't necessarily agree with that edict anymore. I think that there are things that are true that probably don't need to be printed and that you don't need to discuss. And that sort of like, you know, people's mm -hmm. privacy is is of primary importance at a certain point sometimes. So I think that I exist somewhere in between those two poles. I do think that journalism is incredibly important. I think that a lot of stuff deserves to be published, but I think that, you know, if I sort of stand behind everything that Gawker published it, when I worked there, absolutely not. I think deserve is a good word to, to sort of help navigate like that moral or ethical question, you know, like, does it deserve to be published? And I guess, I guess that goes back to like one of the principles of journalism, right? Which is just what is the public service of this? Even if it's a fun satirical piece or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that becomes difficult when you become as big as Gawker became. Navigating what people are deserving targets and what people are undeserving targets becomes harder and harder the sort of like more power you, you ascertain. And I think that, you know, we miss the mark sometimes. And I think Andrea and I lived through this moment as well, like when journalism was moving to the internet and distribution model became social media. And there are factors also outside of the story itself that play a role in what the impact of the story is that are extremely powerful as well. And that was kind of a moment where so many people were experimenting with that power of social media. And sometimes you don't know 
how big something is going to become. One thing that I will say also about Gawker, though, is that I think that Gawker was, you know, it's a, it was ahead of its time. Obviously, this is not new to say, but Corey Sika, I think, is like largely responsible for like the tone of the Internet and the way people write on the Internet. Mm. I think that Ken, La- Ken Lane, who was I used to work at Wonkette and Ken Lane was uh, my editor at there. And I think that Ken Lane is also like hugely responsible for the way people talk on the Internet. Um, and I think that also, you know, the things that were like crazy at the time are now just commonplace. I guess like six months ago, my friends told me about this Instagram account, Dumois, that it's just purely like people's celebrity spottings. It's like people's like creep shots of celebrities out to dinner and they send it to Dumois and Dumois posts it and posts the explanation of like who was there and where they were eating. But all that's to say, it's like, that's just Gawker stalker. Gawker stalker just used to be like people sending in like celebrity sightings around New York and LA or whatever they were and just like, you know, I'm in sort of, you know, I'm in the Gucci store in Soho and I just saw like Lindsay Lohan or whatever and you'd send it to Gawker Stalker and Gawker Stalker would publish that. And, it, and there was a huge uproar amongst celebrities as as like, this is like an invasion of our privacy. And yeah, it's they like, hated it, it, makes, it, I remember. Yeah, and it makes us unsafe. Yeah, and there was like, you know, Emily Gould, one of the early Gawker writers, like went on CNN and had to sort of like face people who, who were excoriating her for standing up for, for Gawker Stalker. And nowadays that's just like, that is just so common now. It's like t- people are tweeting where they see celebrities. People are like taking photos and videos of where they see celebrities and like uploading it to TikTok or whatever. People are like instantly posting all this stuff on Instagram. So it's like all of this stuff that like people were initially angry at Gawker about. It felt just like, you know, Gawker was just ahead of the time and just saw sort of like what was going to happen in culture. And I think that Gawker saw early on that what privacy meant 50 years ago is not what privacy is going to mean nowadays. When- Gawker, I think, was willing to tolerate things that seemed unethical to other people a decade before other people sort of like got on the boat, if that makes sense. Yeah, now it's fairly ubiquitous. And they're even trying to revive Gawker. Or they have. They have, yeah. Which is, you know, interesting because it just raises the question of like, what does that voice look like now? Or can that exact thing be replicated now? Yeah, you know, I'm happy for them. I hope that they are very successful. It's a tough thing to do just because I think with the advent of Instagram and Twitter and all these other avenues for people to express themselves, I think it's like difficult to sort of make your voice heard amongst all the all the noise that exists out there in the world today. Yeah, it kind of really raises these existential questions about like, does the world need Gawker again or need, you know, Vice like to be be what it was in its heyday it sort of feels like the vibe right now is you either die a gawker live long enough to see yourself pivot to video you know yeah yeah you know the second tv show i ever worked on was a show called the nightly show with larry wilmore on on comedy central and i i really liked that job there was a, a ton of amazing people there but the idea that i could never shake was that like you know it is you know it's an incredibly difficult format when literally millions of people are on Twitter every day, like commenting and making jokes about politics. So like, let's say a news story happens at like 10 a.m. It's like, you don't start shooting that show until 6 p.m. And, you know, within those eight hours, you know, there's there's already been like millions of people making jokes and making observations about the thing that you're trying to sort of like make jokes and make observations about. And that's even when you're taping the show, by the time the show premieres and airs at like, you know, 10 p.m., there's already another news story is broken that everybody's focused on by then that you sort of like thought that you were going to comment on that. But that but, you know, it happened 13 hours ago. So it's just it's incredibly difficult to keep up with the pace of the Internet. Yeah. In terms of succession, I mean, because the media landscape is changing at such a rapid clip, how much does or did the show feel a need to kind of keep up with that? Absolutely. It's like the business is the the business is kind of the wallpaper and what you're actually tuning in for is like the family drama. Uh, you know, the same goes for sure. Mad Men. It's like Mad Men is like the advertising was like the wallpaper, but what you're really tuning in for is to like see, you know, Don Draper like have another affair and like sort of like re- explode his life again. Like, right. It's going to be about themes that feel universal and themes that feel timeless and not just 
you know, the way that the media looked in the year 2019. I'm sure that the business stuff does feel dated, but, you know, I'm sure that it's probably still great to watch because it's still funny. It's not Don Draver blowing up its life. It's Kendall blowing up his life. And you're turning it to see like how Kendall's going to screw up again. And there's, there are things that remain a constant, just like the sheer brutality of what life is like in the C-suite and how these very human struggles faced by the individual characters, family struggles, et cetera, are then sort of callously handed down into these like invisible workers below that you don't really see that much. And that was kind of what, for me as a journalist, that in addition to obviously the characters being super compelling, it was sort of imagining these machinations that I never get to see. Yeah. And I think that what I want to get at is is one of the things that like frustrates me about all of media these days, you know, all of journalism and TV and film and all these creative industries is the difficulty of creativity existing in a world in which like you answer to shareholders like that, that to me is, that to me is sort of something that I was get that, that I would like to get at or something that I would like people to take away from, from that episode of succession is just that once you get people like the Roy's coming in or any other private equity firm coming in and all of a sudden you need to make good business decisions, like, good business decisions are very frequently going to be bad creative decisions. I think that frequently interesting artwork doesn't make sense business-wise. You know, uh, when, when you sit down to write something or when you sit down to paint something or you sit down to make a piece of music, uh, if, if, you were, if, if the first thing that comes to mind is like, how good is this going to be for my bottom line? I think that you've already failed. You're already sort of like missing something. And so for me... I think that's just sort of like the incompatibility of those people's jobs at Volter, which is to sort of like make interesting creative work that, you know, sparks a conversation or that interests people. It's not going to sort of like play in the C-suite every every time because the C-suite people want, you know, they demand like, here's the X amount of page views we want this month. And then we want you to double that next month. And then we want you to triple that next month. And it's like, you know, that doesn't necessarily comport with what a good website is or what a good publication does or what a good TV show does. Like those are... Those are not, um, you know, those are not things that that necessarily uh, go hand in hand. I don't think that I'm saying anything new, but it just, I just think that we are in a, you know, we've reached a, we've reached a place now when we've we've sort of have allowed, um, I think, the tech ethos of growth at all costs and growth for the sake of growth. Um, we've allowed the tech ethos to sort of like permeate all aspects of culture. We've allowed it to sort of like permeate journalism allowed it to permeate TV and film. And now you just have a bunch of people operating that like, we need to get bigger. Why aren't we getting bigger? Why don't we have more, 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 as opposed to like, let's focus on like the quality of what we do have. And to me, that's been a devastating blow for all creative industries. There's this amazing interview with Q-Tip where Q-Tip found this like incredible rapper, you know, years ago, I guess. And he was like, I think you're great. And I'm, I want to bring you in for a, for a record contract. And he brought in this, this woman rapper to like it was like Columbia or Capital. It was one of those two. I can't remember. But he was like, "I'm bringing in this next big thing. Like, let's let's sign her." And he brings her in, and they have this meeting with her. And like after the meeting, one of the people at the record company was like, "Yeah, she seems like a nice person, and like we like some of her songs, but like you know, like she's not really doing well on social media. Like her numbers <sighs> on YouTube and stuff like aren't great." And he was like, "Okay." And so then he left there and he went to Def Jam and he did the same thing. And he was like, "He was like, look, I've got this like incredible artist." And Def Jam said the same thing. It's like, you know, our social media numbers aren't great. Like, it's, don't know if it's for us. And that was Megan The Stallion. He said. So like everybody passed. Oh, and they were, my and god. They were just, and they were just like, no, not for us. And it was that turned out to be Megan The Stallion. And so like all these people whose jobs are sort of like to build artists up and 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 sort of like help artists record their artwork and release it to the public they weren't thinking about like the actual artwork or the artist. They were thinking about like the numbers on YouTube and they were thinking about the num- like how many Instagram followers she has. And it's, yep. like, it's just like, we, we are allowing this sort of like tech world mentality of like, you know, there's this, this is like this hippy dippy. When I it was like a, a quote that I heard in college from this conservationist. And he said, the quote is growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. I think about that all the time as it relates to sort of like the way the world is right now, because it's like, 
If you look at an artist and you don't pay attention to what this artist is saying, and, and you're only paying attention to how many Instagram followers they have or like how many YouTube views they have, it's like it is just such a dark way of trying to like work in a creative industry. And it's such a dark way of sort of like looking at looking at what artists do. It's to me is like it's it's like how many numbers like can we put on the board as opposed to like what is the quality is the quality of the work good is is this person like a great writer is this person a great singer is this person a great musician can i envision this person doing wonderful things if i help them grow and instead it's just kind of like well if you don't have a million instagram view followers then like you're worthless to us and i think that kind of mentality is is poisoning creativity it's poisoning all these industries i really think it is the great secret creative crisis that all creative people are going through at this time it's just yeah. people don't talk about it that much but it maybe is one of the biggest existential blocks and painful things that artists and writers and creative people are like privately dealing with yeah we're letting al algorithms assess art like and like you can't let algorithms assess art like algorithms can't do that yet that that to me is what the human beings in those jobs should be doing I honestly think it's a moral issue. Like I, I look at this as a moral crisis. Like that it is, it is immoral to let algorithms and let let your sort of like risk aversion um, like keep you from actually making interesting stuff because you're too afraid that you're going to make a mistake. To me, it's just a huge failing of of every creative industry at this point. I feel like there's more fear driving the creative process now than than ever, at least in my lifetime. I feel fear like when, you know, as a writer, whenever it's embarrassing to say, but whenever I have like a pitch that I'm really, really passionate about and it comes time to like present it somewhere, I'm just like always afraid that like whoever is the person who decides whether, you know, this is worth investing in, are they going to make the arbitrary uh, decision that they feel this is something that will not perform well <laughs> metrics wise? And then, yeah. The thing that I care about most is damned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody is so, so risk averse. And I don't know how that plays out. You know, I don't know how that plays out in other industries, but I'll say like the risk aversion right now in TV and film is like, that's why everything has to be a remake or everything has to be based on a piece of IP. It's like trying to like get something made nowadays that's an original idea. That's like an original, an original movie or an original TV show. Unless you're Aaron Sorkin or Steven Spielberg, like th that's incredibly hard to do. Like people, because mm -hmm. because people want a built-in audience. So that's why it's like, well, let's remake a TV show that, that people made 30 years ago, or let's remake a movie that somebody made 10 years ago, or let's remake a movie that, that, that somebody made in Korea two years ago, but it was, it was Korean and Americans don't like subtitles. So we'll just remake, we'll remake it for the Americans. Like it's, right. it's, it just feels like that is sort of like it's stymieing creativity because everybody's like so afraid, which is it's it's so it's such a weird decision because there's so much money right now. It's not like the industry is struggling at all. Like streamers are having record profits, but they just don't want to like lose out to the next streamer. And so it's like it feels like this arms race of like, let's put out the most content. Let's put out like 15 different animated series and you know to compete with like all the 15 other animated series that this that these people are putting out and it's just like it's just like a constant it's just a, again it's like growth for the sake of growth it's not like it doesn't feel like anybody's really focusing on like let's make sure that the quality is here let's actually like sit down and, and see if this is something that we think is worth putting in the world i had a buddy who took out a a, a show I don't want to reveal too much because this is his personal story, but, but he took out a show that was, I think it was like a comedy that, that um, he'd written and it was a little on the more complex comedy side and, and maybe a little darker. And he had an executive tell him to his face, uh, we're just looking for Schitt's Creek or Ted Lasso, man. Like that, that's all. Like mm -hmm. just like somebody just told him that. And I, you know, I was, I was, I was met with an executive one time who just said like, we were looking for our Bridgerton. If you can bring us our Bridgerton, um, then, then sort of like, we'd love that. And, it's, and I, when I hear people talk like that, I always think like, I would be embarrassed to talk like, like, why are, why are people not embarrassed to say things like this? Like, why are you not, why are you not ashamed to say what I'm looking to do is replicate something that, that other people have already done? Unoriginality is just like such a, such a sin to me. And it's so weird to me though, that that's, that's what like, what is, it seems to be guiding everything now art and commerce have been sort of like at war since the first painting was made. But to me, I, maybe it's just because of recency bias, just because I've only been in this business for the past seven years. And so, so I'm sort of like thinking that it feels, 
especially bad right now, but you know, it, it does feel especially bad right now. It does, it just feels like the stuff that we're asked to, to write and watch is just so it, it's just, yeah, there's just mass risk aversion everywhere. People are terrified. I have a question, this climate of risk aversion, which I think is, you know, half a business model issue, like the streaming arms race and half the nature of discourse right now where everything is politicized, cancel culture, all that. What does being risky creatively or with your art, what does that look like today? I think Lil Nas X is like a perfect example of somebody who's like risky and he's huge because of it. But I also think that there's a key factor of that, which is that like Lil Nas X made a song all on his own that was like incredibly cheap and he put it out and it blew up. Right. And so I think that if Lil Nas X had recorded Old Town Road and taken that to a record label, I think they would have told him to get lost. I think they right. would have laughed at him and they would have said, and I think that they would have said like, there's absolutely no way we're going to put this out. Like, who are you? What are your YouTube numbers? Like how many followers do you have on Twitter? They would have laughed him out of the building. Right. Um, but he did that and sort of like he, he, he put a song out and it blew up. And so then all of a sudden he had a built in audience. And so now there's like sort of like less risk aversion because, because millions of people like that song. And so, and so he's like, has some leeway to sort of like, do wild stuff that that sort of like I think is incredible. So that that's the key is like I don't think I don't think it's like that risky anymore. Like I think that it was like would have been risky at first. Like I think that if if he had come in and been like I want to put out a record and like I'm going to be pregnant in the video and like I'm going to be a pregnant man and people would have been like there's absolutely no way we're going to let you do that. But because sort of he because of Old Town Road blew up and he had all of a sudden had this like big built-in audience, I think people were willing more willing to go along with his with his sort of like wilder ideas and the world is better for it. What an exciting dude to watch and like what an exciting person to, to watch grow. I think that, but I think that the problem is that TV and film is so expensive. It's so expensive to make. Yes. You can of course make a, like a, like a, um, you know, like Issa Rae made awkward black girl on a shoestring budget and people like that. And they gave her insecure. So the, yes, you can absolutely do that, but you're not going to make succession without, corporate overlords saying like, yes, you can do this. Like you right. just not. Succession is an incredibly uh, expensive show to make. Uh, there's obviously like incredibly talented, expensive actors in the show. And so, you know, just like you can't walk in off the street and say like, I'm going to make succession because it's, you know, you, you need somebody to, to give you millions and millions of dollars to, to execute that. I think that I may destroy you is like a, is mm. like a risky, interesting, uh, whatever you may feel about that show, that was very much like a person who just got to execute her vision, which is totally. like, which is so, 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 so rare. Like the fact that she could just walk in and HBO was going to say like, we're giving you this money. You can sort of like do what you want. That is incredibly rare. That's almost unheard of these days. You do see instances of this. You absolutely do see instances of this. But I also, again, I would she have been allowed to make I May Destroy You had she not made chewing gum? Because she, again, she's less of an unknown quantity. That to me is like the the real question is like if Michaela Cole had come in like nobody knew who she was and she came in and said I want to make I may destroy you do you think anybody would have made it no idea like I, yeah. I I don't think so I I I doubt it I didn't know much about her backstory before I saw it and I was like oh are they just way more like permissive in the UK about giving productions like these a shot like or like are they way more open to more kind of creative and indie concepts i was just like how did this happen this is incredible because it's you know she's british or something i mean that's yeah i mean well that france you know europe is like far more permissive i think when it comes to sort of art and stuff like i've got a couple really good french filmmaker friends at this point and they were telling me about this program in france where everybody pays into it and then the french government will fund purposefully anti-commercial work you'll come in and say like i need money for this film it's not it's probably not going to make a bunch of money because it's really weird it's like this weird french art house film but you know i want to make it it's important to me and you go in and pitch them and they'll give you and they'll give you money for your film like can you can you imagine that in america can you imagine somebody coming in and saying like i want to do a really weird quiet art house movie and then the united states government would write you a a check for millions of dollars to go do that like of course that's not going to happen not, that's not to say that like indie movies and indie and indie TV shows like can't get made in the United States of America. I just think it's like much, much harder. It's also because like 
you know, things are a little bit less expensive there. You know, there's not a writer's guild in the UK, so writers don't get paid as much. I don't think actors get paid as much. So, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that go into these kinds of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just do think that there's more of an appetite for outsider art. Well, that's not true. I don't think that there's more of an appetite, but I think it's built in culturally that, that they're going to find ways to help make those things in, in, in ways that it's not built in in the United States. want to talk a little bit about journalists and their growing role in TV. Do you feel like you're an anomaly in terms of being a former journalist who moved into this world? Or do you think it's part of a wider trend? You know, I think that it's it's been, you know, David Simon famously, he's been doing it for right. decades now. He was in Homicide Life on the Street and then The Wire. And he, you know, he comes from a journalism background, you know, I'm sure there was people even before him or who, who sort of uh, left journalism and got into TV. So I don't think it's like anything new. I just think that I always called myself a writer. I felt odd about calling myself a journalist because I didn't, it's not the only thing that I wanted to do. And I felt like a lot of the people that I knew who were, who were sort of like my contemporaries and my colleagues sort of felt like this is what I do. Like I'm a sports blogger or I'm a music writer or I'm a um, political reporter. Like everybody just sort of, it just felt like people were, were really myopic when it came to sort of what they, what they, we're contributing. And I always thought that, you know, people should be more open-minded and it's like, you know, consider writing like a box of tools and you can build a bed with a box of tools. You can build a chair, you can build a coffee table. You can do a lot of things with your box of tools. If it feels like it's a trend at all, I think that it's, it's only a trend because journalism is, is in, in a lot of trouble. And, and I think that, I think that a lot of journalists, you know, feel like they are in unstable places, unless you are at the New York times or the Washington post or the New Yorker, or like Vox or whatever, I think that people are, are like terrified that their, that their jobs are going to go away or that they're going to be laid off or that, or that their magazine or newspaper is going to shutter soon. So I think that people are like looking for ways to remain creative and remain a writer, but in a way that sort of allows them to like, you know, buy a house and feed themselves and like think about having children if they want to have children. And I think that, you know, whereas for a long time, you know, Journalism wouldn't necessarily make you rich, but it could give you a stable income for the rest of your life. Like I think that, like a lot of other industries, that 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 sort of like that sure thing is going away. And so I think that people are like looking for for something that feels a little bit more, you know, steady and and stable. And 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 you know, TV and film is is here for that. How does the one world compare to the other in terms of you know earning a living? Are there like labor issues or inequalities that you feel run in parallel between the oh. two worlds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say that like the, I mean, earning, as far as earning a living, since I've been in the Writers Guild, I made vastly more money than I ever made as a journalist. So as far as sort of like the day-to-day paycheck, like if you work for a year in TV and you work for a year in journalism, chances are you're going to make more money in television than, you, than working a year in journalism, depending on where you are. I would just say on average. That being said, the amount of money that you make as a TV writer versus the amount of money that like Netflix CEOs make or the head of HBO or the head of AT&T, which owns HBO or the head of Fox, like the amount of money that an average TV writer makes versus like the executive at Fox who, who sort of like puts that show on the air is like, you know, hugely different in journalism. The same goes for like, the average New York Times reporter and like the Salzburgers, right? Like obviously the Salzburgers have like vastly more wealth than I would guess like most, if not all of the reporters who work, who work at that newspaper. And so, um, you know, the difference between sort of like the executives and the actual people like on the ground doing the labor of like creating things, unless you're like Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy, that is a pretty big gap. But also it's worth saying that, you know, TV writing is, is inconsistent. You might work on one show in a year and sort of like whatever money you make on that show, despite it being like a great salary, if it were your, if it were a yearly salary, you know, that, that, that ends up being your salary for like three months of work and then you're out of a job again. And so you've got to start like struggling and, and scraping and, and, and trying to, trying to put together money and put together work again. There's a huge 
discussion right now with the IAT, IATSE. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. Yeah, the the IATSE strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's brewing, and so like IATSE people, like those people are on the ground making film and television every day. Now they're not they're not like people in the writers' rooms, but like that doesn't matter. Like like TV and film is a is a huge group effort. Like it requires hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people to make a to make a TV show or or a, or a movie, and so. Um, all of those people who are doing that work are, you know, treated horribly in some cases, like they're, you know, like not allowed bathroom breaks or not allowed to sort of like time off to go get cancer surgery. I've been reading some of these stories and yeah. it's just like, it's really bleak stuff and especially shameful in an industry when the, like money is so prevalent. So yeah, I would say that there, there's sort of like comparable labor issues. I would say that, um, you know, but, but I would say that overall, yes, there's, there's going to be for, for an average TV writer, there's going to be more money for than an average journalist, but you know that doesn't mean that like sort of like smooth sailing, no matter what. Everything we've been talking about in terms of these labor issues and creativity and the demand for like content, content, content over context. I wonder if there's a window right now because you know America and the world in general is having a huge reckoning with labor right now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as things are reopening, people aren't wanting to go back to work. You're seeing unionization movements in industries that I never thought in my lifetime I would see. It's like in the music industry, for example. Uh, Mm -hmm. IATSE, you know, I'm in SAG-AFTRA. We're dealing with stuff there. I'm also in the Writers Guild, too. And I mean, that's cool. Like, I'm in two unions now. Like, that was not the case a few years ago. I kind of wonder if for creatives, do, do you feel like maybe is there potential to kind of reclaim the narrative right now and no longer see scenes like the Valter layoff scene play out in real life anymore? I mean, I would hope so. I think that there does seem to be momentum behind these, behind these issues, but at the same time, there's also the same sort of like corporate structures that are, that, that are, that are out to like destroy these things and they're more powerful than they've ever been. Right. You see the way that, uh, Uber and Lyft destroyed um, Prop 22 in in California, right? Like we like right. we, we spent millions and millions of dollars to to destroy that, and you see the way that that um, you know it's been incredibly difficult to unionize at Amazon, right? Because like Amazon's the biggest company in the world, and and they sort of don't want them to unionize, and so they they do everything in their power to to stop that. There does seem to be momentum behind unionization and, and these labor issues, but at the same time. The billionaires are are stronger than they've ever been before, and have more money than they've ever had before, and they're going to spend a lot more to sort of like to kill these movements. And so, you know, I love the Writers Guild. Like the Writers Guild is is incredibly important to me, and like I'm a I'm a union man like through and through when it comes to that. I'm incredibly happy that people are sort of like sticking up for themselves in this way. But you know, I think that the people are fighting tooth and nail on the other side to ensure that doesn't happen. And right. it's no guarantee against, you know, as we know in media, it's no guarantee that you you don't experience the vault or scene, but it does at least provide you with resources, have someone on your side fighting for getting a better severance or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the fellowship that you created earlier this year with the Writers Guild? Yeah, yeah. As I said before, when I was telling you earlier about like sort of like journalists coming to me and asking me how to get into film and television. I sort of was never able to give them the exact key of like how I got in because I got in, in such an unorthodox way. And so, um, so I always was, was hoping that I could eventually do something that was a little bit, you know, had more material consequence to it. And so when I, I signed my overall deal with Warner brothers last year and I sort of like came into a, you know, more money than I ever thought I would make as a writer, certainly. And I felt like, you know, I wanted to do something with that money that, that wasn't just sort of like selfish and, 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 you know, enriching myself. And so, uh, I decided that like, why don't I just set up a way to, to help out some people to get into TV. And so that, um, you know, I, I put up, I put up my own money for those things and, and, and I, you know, I, I reached out to a bunch of uh, writer friends of mine, all of literally all of whom agreed to to help, which was, which was um, amazing. And uh, it's going well. Literally Monday, we just got in the three scripts from the three fellows. I haven't I haven't had a chance to read them yet, but I intend to read them this weekend. And 
and we're going to try to get them meetings and get them into rooms soon. I wish I could do more, but but it was it was what little I could do for the time being, at least. What makes journalists a good fit for TV? Like, what what impact can they have? I think the journalists are good fit for TV because um, I think that to be a good journalist, you have to be kind of a renaissance person. I think that you need to be interested in a lot of different things. I think you need to be interested not only just in like cultural things, but also politics and, you know, the way systems work and the way corporations work and where money goes. And, And you have an ear for dialogue because you're constantly talking to people or interviewing people or watching interviews. You're doing your own research about things, which is great for, for writing. And you're sort of like hearing a lot of interesting stories that could make for compelling plot lines in a, in a TV show or a movie. So I just feel like, like good journalists are really steeped in this world already. And then when you get into a writer's room, it's, you know, it's just utilizing all the things that you've learned in journalism in a, in a, you know, in a different way. It's, it's not, you know, it's not, like it's rocket science. It's not like you're a fireman and all of a sudden we're asking you to do neurosurgery. It's essentially very similar in these ways. And I think that, you know, people are always like, well, I don't know how to format a script. And it's like, you can learn how to format a script in like, you know, half an hour, just of working, <laughs> with, working with a final draft. The, the hard part is just sort of like learning how to think about plot and learning how to think about characters, learning how to think about story. And, and I think that journalists do that all the time. So I think journalists actually make really great TV writers. Hmm. And when we plan out great, like big features, we often are thinking about things in terms of scenes already. We're bo- both are storytellers. Exactly. I, th- yeah. I think a storyteller is a storyteller is a storyteller. Like I think that if you, I mean, if you can write a great screenplay, you can probably write a great novel. I think if you can write a great totally. novel, you can, you can like probably tell a great story around the campfire that keeps people interested. And I think that like you can probably write a great stage play if you can do that. Like, I just think that these, I think these skills like translate to other areas. I think that people are just sometimes a little frightened to try to utilize those skills. So last question, and this ties into your Gawker show or overlaps with it a little bit, but I don't want to re- restrict it strictly to Gawker. If you were to cast a new media succession, who would the characters be or be based off of? A new media succession. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, it has to be. I think that the sort of like the the triumvirate when I was working in, in new media was very much BuzzFeed, Vice, and Gawker. And I and I guess I remember the all the all was like doing its own thing, kind of like outside of that ecosystem, in in, in a very mm-hmm. interesting way, in a, in a way that sort of like everybody from those three entities like appreciated the all. Whereas I think right. it's sort of like. There were people at Gawker who hated BuzzFeed and hated Vice. And like, I'm sure that, that those, those feelings were mutual from the other places toward Gawker. This is like embarrassing to say, but if, if it were like an incredibly, incredibly nerdy Game of Thrones, like Game of Thrones <laughs> is already kind of nerdy. But if Game of Thrones were even nerdier, it would be uh, Gawker, BuzzFeed and um, Gawker, BuzzFeed and Vice, I think. Right. Does that doesn't that make sense? And then probably probably the New York, the New York Times would sort of like be. I don't know enough about Game of Thrones to sort of like keep the keep the Game of Thrones metaphor going, but the New York Times and sort of like those legacy media corporations would like exist, but it wouldn't be as like interesting as sort of like the rivalry that was going on between BuzzFeed and Gawker and totally, yeah, or like some of the 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 major players because we had a lot of big personalities from this era too. Yeah, they, Nick Denton, I'm imagining Nick like amazing. like Succession, but with like Shane Smith and Nick Denton and uh... Ben Smith. Can you imagine Jonah Peretti? Like it's like. It would, it would, that, I mean, that would, that would absolutely, I love, I would love to see the conversations between those Bill Simmons. Yeah, exactly. Like all of the, yes, yes. It would, I mean, I think that that is hopefully my TV show. uh, Well, not my, my, the TV show that I made with my friends, hopefully that gets on the air one day. And I think that you might be, you might be delighted because I think Mm -hmm. that there is a, there's a good amount of what we're discussing right now in the show. That's the show that I personally want to see. You guys, well, please go become an executive at a TV network. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. I'll, I'll get right on it. <laughs> if you guys ever want a second career, executive at a TV network, and I've got a show for you, I promise. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Hopefully there's a lot of executives listening to this. If they are, note this. Take it down. It's got to get made. There's no way that's not going to get made. I appreciate that. From your lips, I appreciate that. <laughs> cool. Well, Cord Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast talking with you. Thank you. I had a really nice time.
The Culture Journalist is produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and Andrea Dominic. Our theme music was composed by Mark Donica. For more from this episode, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, share us with a friend or leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism. Little Lord Fuckleroy has left the call.